0: Brother Harold asked that we mark song number 32, and we'll use that a bit later in the service this morning. Surely, as we have lifted our voices together in praise and adoration to the great God of heaven, what an exciting opportunity it has been. And truly, each of us, I trust, have had our spirits lifted and moved upward as we've given thought to the great lesson of these songs, the opportunity of our prayer together, and the loveliness that comes with being a Christian. The privilege that comes with Christianity, of course, comes with responsibility as well. And as we make thought to the upcoming gospel meeting, let's again keep that on our calendars as we continue to work for and pray toward that eventuality. Brother Carl Sims will be with us and we trust that he will have made his preparation and the lessons he will bring will be beneficial and truly in light of the grandeur of God's truth and loveliness. But we each, of course, have our task as well If at all we can, let's continue to pray for that meeting, to invite others to come and be with us, to insist to them that that which is shared will truly be the will of God and that many who are in need of response, maybe they will have an ear and an open ear that they might bring their lives into compliance with God's teachings. In recent weeks, we have on these Sunday morning lessons given our attention to some daily decisions and as we've done that, we've been reminded that so often these decisions really go against the grain of culture. They go against the grain of what the world would insist to us would be completely normal. That first week, we looked at decisions as it relates to our appearance. What should I wear? They're in a morning that goes by, but what each of us have to make some decision about what today will I wear and how will I appear to others who are about me. We did learn that the Word of God is not silent on that subject, but that it places demands that we wear that which is becoming of our association to the Master Himself. Last week we noticed daily decisions concerning that which we drink. Again, there isn't a day that goes by, but what each of us must make decisions about that which I drink, and without question the world often says that it really doesn't matter be it alcoholic beverages or not, if you want to drink it, do so. But we learned again that God's Word is not silent on that subject, but that it in fact powerfully and strongly enforces that we must be wiser in that decision than that. Today, what about another decision that again we each make on a daily basis? Daily decisions of speech. This opening slide, in fact, just reminds us of some of those central thoughts. Culture and society, again, wage a strong battle that it really doesn't matter so much what you say. I wonder today, shall we find that God's Word, again, is not silent concerning the words that we speak, the character of the language that we use. It is with that in mind that I would invite you to look at the bottom of that slide and let's reflect upon and study for the next few moments about our words. W-O-R-D-S. Words. These introductory comments, I hope, will put before each of us the critical nature of this set of decisions. Words are powerful. Quite often it is a joyful exercise when parents hear their little baby, boy or girl, first start to talk. It's an exciting thing because we understand the capability of communication and a lifetime of using words is now at the disposal of that that youngster. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18:21. We read in James 3, verse number 5, "...the realization that, Behold, what a great matter a little fire kindleth." And that was in the very context of the usage of words, language. Both Old and New Testament highlight for us the critical reality of the words that we speak and the great care that should go with that language. Some numbers are next presented on that slide. And I would invite you to give some thought to the greatness of what they say. It is true, isn't it, that words can be used to encourage. They can be used to bring about much good. They can be used to edify and build up. But by the same token, words can also be great destroyers. They can bring about much harm. To highlight, in fact, that very thing, notice this with me. The average person speaks somewhat over 6,000 words per day. That translates to over 42,000 words per week. That translates to over 180,000 words per month. And in a lifetime of some 70 years, that would translate to well over 160 million words. Suffice it to say that we each use many words every day. It is true that some would use less than that because of the nature of their life and the character of their work, and there are others who would use a lot more words than that, those who speak a great deal. Any of us, though, should realize that our words come in great numbers and that great power goes with them. I would invite you to think with me for the next few moments this morning about how am I and how are you using this great blessing that God has given us. What does the Bible say about usage of our words? As you can see near the bottom of that slide, we shall use as our lesson text the very passage read in our hearing earlier this morning. In Matthew chapter 12 verses 36 and 37, would you please look at that again with me? as we hear again the marvelous reminder from the Son of God Himself. "'But I say unto you,' Jesus said, "'that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned.'" On this occasion, the Son of God, Jesus As he was involved in this aspect of teaching, he arrived at the point in the presentation in which he reminded them and taught very directly that language and speech is of critical importance. So critical is it that I would invite you to notice, in fact, some of the words that our Savior used to describe this. Again, he said, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. The Lord used this word idle. That comes from the Greek word arnon, which literally is a composition of two words. One is the prefix that means not, and the other is work, and thus this word means not working. Words that are inactive, words that are not beneficial, words that are not working. Jesus said, I'm telling you, every man is going to give account in the day of judgment for every Arnon word that he says, every inactive word. Doesn't that highlight to us that words that are inactive, words that are unbeneficial, these words that fall under this categorization are words that we should seriously consider. What words are these? And in our society, isn't it true that we should frequently reflect every day in those 6,000 words I say Are any of them idle? Are any of them inactive? Are any of them those that would fit the characterization here and thus would fall under condemnation on the day of judgment? Each of us should think carefully. In so doing, you'll notice that this takes us to the next element in the Lord's statement. It leads us to this appreciation. When Jesus described these words as idle... Based on that usage that we just identified from that original word, it seems as though the Lord's thrust was these words then that provide no profit. These words furthermore that thus are pernicious. And I use that word in part because in 2 Peter 2 that same word is used on that occasion. This thought of perniciousness leads us to see harmful words, destructive words, Words that do not have in their nature that which produces or leads to any closer relationship to God. It's words that truly are destructive, harmful, and those that have no benefit to them. As the Lord made reference to these statements, He went on to say this, that those who speak these words shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. That word again literally means to make reckoning. Doesn't it teach us that we're going to have to give an answer for these idle words that we've spoken? You'll notice the next verse goes on to say this. It begins with this word for, which is a word of explanation. It has all the force and thrust of explaining. And it says, For by thy words thou shalt be justified. That word justified, as you can see, means to declare or pronounce as righteous. And we learn immediately that on that great and noble occasion of the day of judgment, it will be by our language and by our words in part that we shall be reckoned as just and right. But on the other hand, it says, By thy words thou shalt be condemned. It's also true that on that day of judgment, if we are found to be lacking and if we are found to be lost, it will be in part because of the language that we have chosen to speak and the words we've chosen to use. Death and life, again, as we noted earlier, are in the power of the tongue. Each of us make decisions every day. What am I going to say and how am I going to say it? I think we've already seen enough passages that remind us this is not merely a trivial consideration. It's very important. How will I answer the question I ask? How will I speak with my wife and children? How will I address the others whom I interact with at work? Will my language be idle? If so, there is a strong element of condemnation that goes with it. No wonder we should perhaps think twice and speak once. We need to be very careful of what language we use. I would ask that we spend the remainder of our time this morning thinking, what might be some examples of idle speech? What might be some examples of speech that would come under the heading of being that which the Lord has condemned on this occasion? I might suggest that as we begin to think about this, many issues perhaps come before our minds day by day. Sometimes our are youngsters at school. Their friends will challenge them or perhaps accuse them of something and they have to make a decision. How will I answer the accusation? May I suggest, young people, don't be foolish about the answer. Simply state the matter and do not fall under any condemnation in light of idleness and language. Those of us that are older, we too face also careful deliberation on occasion. Someone challenges or presents us with something and if we aren't careful. In the heat of a moment, perhaps in a bit of anger, we might say something that might be catalogued as idle. May we again be enough in self-control so that this would not be characteristic of our downfall. This matter of idleness, you'll notice The last part on that slide does prompt us to see that we, in fact, may face condemnation because of our language. What are some of these examples of language that would be classified as idle? And we, again, are in interest to use God's Word to help us identify this. Simply, my definition is not good enough, and neither is yours. Let us revisit at the very outset Proverbs 10, verses 31 and 32. As we dip back into the pages of the Old Testament, we find on that occasion, the last two verses of that chapter, that something rather notable is set forth. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. That statement is found in verse 32, and it highlights the fact that those that are righteous know what is acceptable language. They have in fact guided their thinking and their character in such a way that they are understanding of what's proper speech. But the very last part of that same verse goes on to say, "...the mouth of the wicked speaketh forwardness." And immediately we come face to face with this word frowardness, which is certainly not a common word in our language today. What does it mean to say that something is froward? And you might notice that's spelled F-R-O-W-A-R-D, froward. That is the King James word on that occasion that means perverse. And I've helped us by attempting to appreciate some examples of perverse language. It is clear that it's the wicked that speak this way. Did it not say, the mouth of the wicked speaketh forwardness"? Clearly, speaking forwardness is not good because the wicked do it. Those that are ungodly do it. Those that have not the proper appreciation of and pursuit of the ways of God are the ones talking like this. We notice in the previous verse, verse 31... Some additional commentary is given about forwardness, that is to say, perverseness. We notice immediately that God hates it. Two chapters earlier in Proverbs 8:13, we read that among the listing of things that God hates, a forward tongue is one of them. God doesn't want you or me speaking perverseness. He does not want us using our ability of speech to talk about what's perverse. Now, as we give thought to perverseness, Notice some clear examples. Sowing discord qualifies as perverseness, according to Proverbs 6, verses 19 and 20. When you and I use our speech to sow discord, to sow strife, to tear apart friendships, to speak about things that have no good beneficial end, just simply sowing discord, the Proverbs writer says that is perverseness. May you and I thus be cautious and ask, Am I guilty of whispering as the Bible defines it? You see, whispering is frequently described as that which is basically backbiting, tail-bearing, gossiping. You'll notice that qualifies as perverse speech. Am I guilty of this? Someone has defined gossip as speaking negatively about someone when they aren't there to defend themselves. Am I guilty of this? It may be that as I'm aware of things that may be occurring in the life of others, it isn't merely a required thing that I share it. It may bring about no beneficial good to tell anybody about it. Am I guilty of this? Doesn't it cause us to think twice and to remember that whispering does separate chiefest of friends? More than once, you and I perhaps remember in school when some youngster, perhaps due to envy, maybe due to jealousy, but they start a rumor. Others accept that rumor is true, not chasing and understanding that the facts do not bear the case. And suddenly we appreciate that a person's reputation has been harmed, all because of a rumor that was started. It's sad when people choose to use speech that way we notice perverse language ought to be far from the thinking of a person like you and me, those that want to be right with God. For we understand there's no room for perverseness. As you can well tell near the bottom of that slide, many passages remind us. In Romans 1 verses 29 and 30, there the inspired apostle gave a powerful listing of activities that are not pleasing to God. And in that listing are things like murderers, disobedience to parents, but notice it says whisperers. Now, he wasn't talking about those that just lower their voice. We all know in libraries that we talk quietly. That's not the kind of whispering he was talking about. He was talking about those who use their speech in the exact way that we've discussed today. tale-bearing, whispering, sharing truths and rumors and gossips and stories. Our language ought to be more positive than that. And we should use it to the positive edification and glory of what's good and not to tear apart that which in fact is improper. Might we say in light of all those things that it's time to look at another kind of language that qualifies as idle. You'll notice here at the bottom of this slide, what about corrupt language? I use that word corrupt because the Apostle Paul did. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul said, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. In the midst of this book that identifies and sets forth the grandeur and greatness of the church of Christ amongst that listing, reference was directly made to what was said. He said, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That word corrupt, as you can tell, it literally has reference to that which is rotten or that which is rotting. Question, are the words that I speak more akin to something rotten? Do they lead to anything productive and noble? Do they bring about what will have hopefully a better harvest than a rotten one? Rotten language? I would suggest that each of us give thought that this language that's rotten is in fact this corrupt language and Paul identifies it. Note with me again the wording of that verse. Let no corrupt communication. He didn't say let a little or let but few. He said let none. We must then carefully guard what we say so that nothing that we affirm or say is corrupt. He goes on to say this. But that which is good to the use of edifying is the word I'm about to say, edifying. Now we might carefully notice, Paul does not say that we can't correct someone. Someone may be in need of correction and that certainly is not under the umbrella of what's corrupt because we would hope in their correction that they would come to appreciate the error of their way and thus stand more rightly before the god of heaven than they have in the past this corrupt language is thus not merely correcting someone that's wrong it is very different corrupt language would qualify as perverse in the sense that this language does not edify it doesn't have any sense of edification it's just a idol am i guilty of this shame on me if if so As you give thought to it, doesn't it prompt us to think about another application? Not just corrupt in that way, but the word that Paul uses in Colossians 3.8. There Paul says, put away filthy communication out of your mouth. Not only is language, you see, condemned as we've discussed it to this point, but let's cast the spotlight on filthy language. Perhaps it has ever been so... But isn't it so easy to hear cursing, profanity, vulgarity, this language in which heavenly things are used in vain? People talk about God, they use His name, they use Christ's name, and they do so, talking as they often say, like a sailor. What a tragedy! What an absolute tragedy! God has already told us that we're going to give account in the day of judgment for every idle word spoken question. Is that kind of language unproductive? Is that kind of language not fit to be spoken? Surely when we think about vulgarity and profanity, that easily falls in the umbrella of this language that's idle. Paul again said, put away filthy communication from you. Quite often it's true that words come to have different shades of meaning and we need to help make sure our youngsters understand those shades of meaning so that they are not using a word really that is at the very least questionable, if not absolutely not proper for a Christian. And yet the society uses it. Many words have come to have that kind of idea behind them. As you and I employ these various words... May we again think very carefully about what that word signifies and where it comes from. There are others who, in fact, may hear that word, and they may hear it very differently. Ephesians 5, 4, again, outlaws foolish talking. Isn't it true that there still are those who like to involve themselves in foolish talking? That is to say, talking that, again, does not have the productivity and edification that goes with it, It's just foolish. It serves as no useful purpose. In fact, it even harms or detracts perhaps the faith of others. May we be quick to say at this point that there are many in the academic field who seem to enjoy foolish talking. They can talk for hours on end about nothing. And quite often what they say not only is empty, but rather it even turns to the point of destroying the intensity and faith of those who hear them. I have the misfortune quite often of listening to such foolish talking. Again, academics are professionals at foolish talking. I would urge all of us to be careful about what they, what they have written and what they say because they can take words and twist them. They can take a word and change the thrust and the force of its meaning in such a way that it leaves you and me in doubt. Well, what is he saying? Quite often, upon careful deliberation, we find that he has not said much at all. Notice again, words are powerful, and we must use them with care. When a baby learns to talk, and from that point on in life, the capability of using language, it is an amazing gift that God has given us. The animal kingdom doesn't use words like we do. They don't have a vocabulary like you and I. No wonder we must be very purposeful and very careful about the language that we use. As you give thought to foolish talking, notice that that leads us perhaps to consider lying. What about the usage of our speech to tell that which is not true, to speak falsehood? You'll notice with me how, too, that qualifies in this regard. I've asked you to think with me about these particular appreciations. First of all, did not Paul say in Ephesians 4.25, Speak ye every man the truth with his neighbor. It is true, isn't it, that you and I serve a God, the God of truth. God is a God of truth. Deuteronomy 32, 4 reminds us exactly that He calls Himself that. God does not set forth that which is false. He does not encourage us and He does not want us to pursue it. He wants truth. May there always be truth pursued in the inward parts. May you and I appreciate that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth 1 Timothy 3:15. Jesus the marvelous son of God while here upon this earth emphasized the integrity of truth. Notice that as Paul wrote about truth that takes us and Paul quoted from the Old Testament in Zechariah the 8th chapter there is an emphasis upon speaking only that which is true. Note verse 16 of that chapter. When you and I give thought to the element of truth, does it not remind us that again, our modern age, and perhaps it has ever been so, is one in which most do not look upon it as a bad thing to simply stretch the truth, to simply cast things in the light of what is beneficial for me. But may we again notice the truth can't be stretched. It is not like a rubber band. The truth is that which is the revelation of God and it is that which a given circumstance is what did take place. Truth is an absolute matter, isn't it? And thus, we must be careful and not be guilty of trying to shade it, color it, stretch it, bend it, and certainly not to break it. Aren't we reminded that we are to be people of our word? That was true in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 30, verses 2 and 3. And it certainly is true also in your situation and mine today. Thus, when we give thought to lying, isn't it sad? When so many times we seem to find public figures who have been caught in lies. Sometimes it's politicians, sometimes it's athletes, sometimes it's others who occupy high positions, but it always tarnishes them, doesn't it, when you and I come to realize he lied to me. He stood right there and a straight face, said something that he knew was not true. Never again is it really easy to look upon him the same way again, is it? May you and I always remember that we shall give account in the day of judgment for our idle words truth as we've seen it presented in this way does bring us to appreciate this. Paul also makes mention in Ephesians 5 verse 4 of another kind of language that has no part to play in your life and mine. The King James uses the word jesting, J-E-S-T-I-N-G. According to the listing that's given there, this again is listed in the very same way as foolish talking. It's described in a similar way to these other activities like uncleanness that should be removed from us. Question, what is jesting? What is that so that I can rest assured that I would know what it is and thus I can avoid it? That word jesting means coarse. It identifies that which is vulgar. It has reference to what involves obscenity. And it seems, according to the Greek word, to particularly have a light-hearted element to it, as if to say it relates to jokery. Today, isn't it true there are many who perhaps will try to bring a laugh. They'll tell a dirty joke or they'll tell what they think is funny, all in the name of gaining an audience, all in the name of being a comedian. And in so doing, they're jesting because they're employing what involves profanity, what involves vulgarity, what is a shadier and darker presentation of wording? It would seem that Paul's word directly relates to such. And doesn't it remind us the caution that must go, the business is merely not to try and make somebody laugh. Many is the comedian that may try to do that. But again, it's an improper and perverse usage of that gift of language. Today, as we've looked at things from lying to perverseness, to the characteristic of these matters, there is one or two more. And we will in brevity use them to close our language and its study this morning. What about the swearing of an oath? And I use that very carefully. I use that not in the sense of affirming that one tells the truth, for hopefully each of us do that. I use that in the sense that from time to time that word has come to be used. There are some who might say that they will make a statement upon the integrity of their mother's grave, that they will give assurance to something in the integrity of, let's say, what has happened as an event in place or time. They in so doing are making an oath, they're swearing, as that word is used in the Scriptures. And in so doing, we notice it does bring us to a text not only found in James, but also from the lips of our Savior Himself. Jesus did say in Matthew 5, verses 37 and 8, that one, in fact, must not be guilty of swearing. And James reiterated that in James 5, verse 12. He therefore made that statement, "'Let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than this.'" is in fact that which is condemned. When you and I thus make statements to, though, to others, do we make ourselves guilty of making an oath, swearing in this sense or case? Notice again, James said that that should not occur in the life of those that are Christians. Our word ought to be that which is in fact that which we claim it is. And our integrity of life ought to be enough to substantiate it. You and I should be those who are recognized as telling the truth, those who live according to that which we proclaim, and those whose life is an open testimony to truthfulness as God has presented it. Our language ought not be trying to find loopholes to cover things up. Doesn't it remind us that by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned? Maybe in finality we come to that speech that can be cataloged as hypocritical. That very last element that we pointed out perhaps leads to this. It's related to it certainly. Hypocritical speech. In James chapter 3, we remember a somewhat powerful presentation about the power of the tongue. We're each reminded that this tongue is a careful thing. It's hard to tame it, but yet we must try But yet we must ever understand that out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing, and my brethren, such things ought not so to be. Those were the words of James in James 3.10. He said, such things ought not be. You and me, then, ought not be those who on Sunday talk one way, and then on Monday talk something different. As if to say that now we're in a different crowd with a different group, and I'm not at the church building anymore, and so... I can speak in this somewhat unappropriate way, because you see now I'd be talking idly, and that idle speech will bring about my condemnation. Whether it be Monday or whether it be Sunday, our language is very important. The Word of God testifies to us just how careful we must then choose those words. We know that God is not a god of hypocrisy. psalm fifty five twenty. Luke six forty six, as well as many other passages remind us that God not only is a God of truth, but He wants us to be people of truth. And that includes our language. As surely as both social drinking as well as appearance demand daily decisions, surely our language does as well. May we be cautious and may we not think that words are unimportant. And may we never think that words are insignificant because they really are important and they really are vital and they really will be a part of the judgment. What about your language today? The greatest words that can emanate from your lips or mine is, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to really mean it. Many of us have enjoyed on many occasions hearing someone affirm that right before their baptism. And we understand that when that person says that with all the truth and meaning of life, they truly are binding themselves to the fact of what Jesus set forth and what a great charter to life that will be. It could be today that you at some point in the past have made that statement, but you no longer are living in truth to it. You've allowed your language, you've allowed other aspects of life to not only be questionable, but in fact to be against what the Lord has taught. We'd be honored to pray with you today, but you need to repent and you need to confess those things to God. Why not come before us and others today, if they have been public in nature, and let us pray with you. If you have never become a member of the body of Christ, at this point every evil thing you've ever spoken is still being held against you. If you've reached that age of knowing wrong from right and again have not obeyed the gospel, your speech at this point is weighing heavily against you. You need to have forgiveness from the things you've spoken, the inappropriate matters that have fallen from your lips. Today, let us recall, Jesus again said this, Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. If we could be of assistance to you today in putting yourself on the side of justified rather than the side of condemned, let us help you. The gospel plan of salvation demands you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess Him as the Son of God and be baptized, and then live faithfully until death. If we could help you today, would you not in haste let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?